Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning, church. Good morning. There we go. That lovely sound. So this morning, as uh, we go through Revelation, and um, as we go through um, every sermon in Revelation, we're going to start with the reading of Scripture first. This is very intentional because as we read in verse 3, we are blessed by the reading of the Scripture. So we're going to start there. And we are in chapter 1. Verses 4 through 8. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before him, before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And so... uh, A lot of content here. And so our sermon today is called Completely God. Just completely, completely God. Let me pray for us. Lord, you are completely God. May we never forget that, Lord, both in the way we think, Lord, the way we operate spiritually, the way we view uh, what we see on the news, on social media, what we see happen in our family that you are still completely God, um, who who was, is absolutely today, and will always be God. You are here, Lord. This is your story, Lord, the story of Jesus, Lord, the story of your people. May we see it clearly uh, this morning, Lord, in a crucial text, just how we, we figure in this story of yours. And how by your love you've made us priests, Lord. You've made us a kingdom uh, to you. And, and what an honor and privilege, Lord. Help us to know what it means and live what it says, Lord. And we do this to the glory of Jesus. Amen. And so as we read through verses, uh, as we read through verses 4 through 8, you probably noticed a couple of numbers and a couple of letters. And so, which means this week we will start looking at symbolism, right? And so the way that's going to work as we go through the book of Revelation is, obviously we didn't have a sermon where I just said, here's a list of symbols and what they all mean. That would take us a couple of weeks. So instead, as we come across a new symbol, we will talk about it. What does this symbol mean? And we'll talk about it as they come up again, and the ones that come up will over and over. And so we'll just deal with them as they come up. This week being... Uh, numbers and letters specifically. And if you are um, Gen X like me, I guess any generation, 
Um, when you hear the idea that this is brought to you by letters and numbers, what comes to your mind? Sesame Street, absolutely. And so I couldn't help but think of this the whole time I wrote this sermon, that today's sermon and all the book of Revelation, we can sincerely say is brought to us by the number three, the number seven, and the letters alpha, not alpha, and omega. This is the, the hands of God in Revelation every time we see them. And so let's begin by looking at uh, the first part of verse 4, where it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And so what we find here is John giving a message to the complete church. John is giving a message to the complete church. <clears throat> now I know, that's not what it says. It says Revelation is to seven churches. Right? Seven specific churches in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. And we also know that um, historically, even in this region, there are other churches besides these seven in this area. Right? Troas has a church. Colossae, we know, has a church. And so why just give this letter to seven churches? And so we find our first symbol, the number seven. The number seven represents completeness fullness, or wholeness. It's really, really a symbol of God saying this work was done by God. It's like God's signature, that number seven, this complete work was done by God. And we find this throughout Scripture. You might recall opening your Bible and finding the seven days of creation. You know, the priests, like uh, the Levitical priests, when they would do a sacrifice... They would have to sprinkle blood seven times to complete the sacrifice. Festivals. How long did it take to complete a festival? Seven days, right? Sevens everywhere. Uh, periods of cleansing, seven days. I can't help but think of the walls of Jericho that were completely destroyed after what? Seven days, right, of walking around and then walking around seven more times. Why? So that they would know this wasn't you guys, this was God. That's God's signature. Like they didn't scream loud enough to knock down the walls, right? I mean, it was God, hence the seven. God is doing this. And so here we have seven churches that represent the whole and complete church all throughout history. Now, these churches are real. We will see in chapters two and three several months of real churches with real problems, right? And, and real praises as well and, and real promises, but these are present throughout the entire church age. And God, in his wisdom, picked these seven churches as being the perfect representation, the whole representation of his message to the church under persecution, which means that Vanguard Bible Church is the recipient of the letter of John, which means any admonitions, encouragements, or promises to these churches are also to us. We can read them as being to us. And so here, here, here's a math question for you. If Vanguard Bible Church is represented in these churches, and we add that to the seven churches, how many churches do we have in Revelation? Seven. All right, you guys are awake. Perfect. I'm so glad nobody said eight. I would have felt really bad. <coughs> so let's continue to read verse uh, four and then some of verse five. 
Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And what we find here is God is in complete control. This is important because these churches that he's writing to, we will see, are already under persecution. This letter isn't saying persecution is coming. It's saying worse persecution is coming. And so their world is out of control. And so this grace and peace from God, one of the ways that's present is in the fact that God is saying he is in complete control of what is happening. Moreover, the triune God is in complete control. But what does triune mean? Three, right? And so we find the number three, right? Just like in Trinity, we, we find three in the, in the Trinity. And the number three is all over Scripture, and it's all over Revelation. But the difference with the number three is you're not told it's there. It's there if you can see it. And if you see it, You've seen God, because three is the Trinity. Three is God. Three is the divine. Three is the holy. In chapter one alone, there are 12 sets of three. None of them say three, but it's there. And that's God. That, that's chapter one. That's John letting you know this is absolutely God. And so it starts here in this Trinity, which is three, talking about the Father. Now, how's the Father described? The one who was, who is, and who is to come. That description has how many parts? Three, right? So you see God, three. It's, it's right here in front of us. It's given us the key to understanding this right off the bat. <coughs> and so God is able to give this vision. The Father is able to give this vision in this letter because of this description, he was, he is, and he is to come. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And this is an encouragement. Like, this is not beyond the scope of, of God's view. This church, uh, they, they might not think, from, from their point of view, like, this doesn't make sense. This can't be God's plan. This is the plan, and God is telling them, look, I am so far above and beyond this plan in every direction. Yes, this is the plan. And then it says, before his throne, the throne of the Father, are seven spirits, which represent the Holy Spirit. Again, um, the second member of the, it would technically be the third member of the Trinity, but here we'll see for a specific reason that he'll mention the Holy Spirit second. And we find this number again, seven. There are not seven Holy Spirits. So make note of that. There's not seven Holy Spirits. So why use the number seven here? Because as we will see, all this is the complete work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Everything taking place, this is, it says it puts you in the throne room of God. So God the Father, all the work, all the ministry that's being done is done completely by the work of the Holy Spirit, which we've talked about in almost every sermon. And you see it here, the complete work of the Holy Spirit. Now the original reader as well, and this is where we're going to have to do our homework this morning. The original reader hears seven in Holy Spirit. Like, we might scratch our heads. That's an odd description of the Holy Spirit. But no, they would think of Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Well, that's a prophetic reference to Jesus, but it's described, the ministry of Jesus, the work and growth of Jesus is described by the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if we're not familiar with Isaiah, well then, we don't see that, but, it, but it's clear. And it's, we're going to come back to that um, towards the end of the sermon. <clears throat> and now we have the third member of the Trinity mentioned, which is Jesus. And once again, we go back to the threefold description. Again, this is God, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, three truths that are meant to bring peace to the hearer. And we're going to look at these. Jesus Christ as the faithful witness. You know, if, if you were to sum up the application of the book of Revelation, what does it mean to us? It's a call for us to be faithful witnesses. I mean, if we wanted to get it down to one line, it, it, it's the plea from God, the call from God to be a faithful witness like Jesus, who was a faithful witness of the truth of God. When people didn't want to hear it, when this guy just started going around saying the kingdom of God is at hand, not only that, the only way into the kingdom was through himself, right? Jesus was proclaiming that he was the only way to God and the kingdom was here. And this would cost him his life. He was a faithful witness to the death. But he didn't stay dead. Instead, he becomes the firstborn of the dead. Now, this is one of my favorite titles of Jesus. You know, I know sometimes I'm like, is it wrong to have a favorite verse or a favorite book? Or, I mean, it's all the Bible. Like, this is one of my favorite titles of Jesus. Sounds like an awesome metal band, too, right? But firstborn of the dead. Now, I love uh, the way R. Kent Hughes um, explains this phrase. He said that Jesus pioneered the resurrection from the dead. I never thought about it like that. He pioneered the resurrection of the dead. That's, that's an awesome, cool pioneer. Jesus is the inaugurator of a new creation. By him doing that, all reality as we know it is going to be turned inside out and made new. Through that one moment where something dead, him, came back to life, all of existence now, we know the hope of the gospel is that everything is going to be made new because of that event. Again, firstborn of the dead, first to come back and live eternally. So what does that imply? I know what I hear. There's more, right? That, that, that's the, the joy and the hope of that verse. Firstborn of the dead, not the only born of the dead, a, a born of the dead, the first of many. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will be born again from the dead through Christ. That excites me. He just unlocked this way to live forever. He pioneered it. Now, one of the beautiful twists of the death and resurrection of Christ is the way that he sort of turned this idea of rulership on its head. If you look at the Gospels, it looks like the rulers of the earth win, right? It looks like they had to think. They won. They crucified him. The Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, Satan himself, they won. They're going to rule now. They thought they killed him. 
But because of his death and his defeat of death, because of the death of death in Christ, he becomes their ruler. Right? If you think about it, every ruler ha- has some barrier, some extent to their rule, which is what? Even if they have a perfect reign, they're going to die. All empires are going to end, right? All empires die. But because Christ was resurrected, that is not going to stop him. The kingdom of God will be the last kingdom standing. That is not a barrier for him. He defeated, he became what we see here, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Which means Jesus is ruling now. We can't forget that. We're going to see that all throughout Revelation. Even when others think they're ruling, they're under the authority of Jesus. Even when rulers do horrible things in our world that we see, even our own government or whatever we see on the news around the world, Jesus is still in charge. He's allowing that to happen. We can't see it any other way. We need only go to the Old Testament to see that this is absolutely true. When empires rise and fall, and God says, I'm just using them. I'm going to use this empire to judge you, and then I'm going to use them to judge another empire. And he's in complete control. And we see this even back in the Exodus, right, where God's grace and judgment are happening at the same time. We find that in Revelation that a lot of the judgment on the earth, you know, we we think like, oh, this is Satan doing this. Satan is doing all this wrong. No, the person riding the four horsemen, leading them out is Christ. Right? And so judgment and grace of God coming at the same time. That's what we're going to find in Revelation just like the cross, judgment and grace at the same time. Now empires, we're going to see, they rise and they fall. But because Christ died and rose again, he will be the last one standing over all of them. Revelation asks us which kingdom we belong to, which kingdom we will be faithful to. Now, God is making his case right in chapter 1. He's letting you know, well, there's two paths you can choose. I'm God over everything, always will be, always was, am today. And then we'll even see later on in, you know, I guess spoiler alert if you haven't been through Revelation before, but Satan's going to use that number three as well. And he's going to try to deceive people. And God's letting you know right now who he is and what it looks like to serve him. So the question for us is like, okay, we have these awesome threefold description of Christ. How are we to live? What do we do with that? What, what is our response besides having awesome theology, right? What, what's the actual, is there a requirement of us to respond to this theological truth? And there is, and we find it at the end of verse five and then verse six. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so to be a follower of Christ and to be a Christian, we have two duties. According to this, according to the threefold right, presentation of Christ, we have two duties. Not three, we're not God. We have two duties in response to Christ. And we'll call this the complete work of the Christian 
And it is witness and worship. Witness and worship. And we'll start with witness. Our proper response to Christ is to be a faithful witness. Witness to the fact that by his blood we've been set free. Witness to, by, to the fact that we are part of a new kingdom. And so what, what, is, what does witness mean here exactly? It's to proclaim and to show that this is true. Like we should be proclaiming to everybody what is true about God. It says he made us a kingdom through his blood because of his love. He made us a kingdom. Not only did he make us a kingdom, but he gave us the keys to it. Right? And what are the keys? The cross, the cross of Christ. He said, you know, I've made you a kingdom, now be witnesses. Tell other people this kingdom is expanding. Tell other kingdom you've been set free from sin. Tell, tell everybody else that there is a new kingdom that's going to outlast every other kingdom. Tell them there is freedom. There's freedom from sin and there's freedom from this world they live in. And if they look around at their world and they think, wow, this is really bad, be a witness to what is really good, God himself. Our service is also a witness to the kingdom. Leading in worship, helping out with the children, helping up with uh, set up and tear down, leading your own families in worship. Even the work we do. Right? A lot of us here, all but one, like we're pastors, right? I'm just, I'm the only pastor. But whatever you do, you could be a witness to the kingdom of God. That's what this is saying. You could do things in a way that gives glory to Christ. You know, I, I thought about it like this this week. You know, we, sometimes we can't choose, you know, who we pay our taxes to, right? We don't choose who we pay our taxes to. But the choice that we have in our work is who gets the glory from our work, right? Give to Caesar what is due Caesar, but give glory to God, Second, we are to worship. We have been made priests. We are to lead the chorus of the worship of Jesus. We are to do this as priests, teaching about God, pointing to Jesus, right? We should be singing songs, living in a sacrificial way. What this verse says is that we are all priests which means that we are all priests of the apocalypse. Put that on your resume, right? That's awesome, man. Talk about another great metal band name. But the awesome thing is it's true. In all of our work and all of our families, we are priests of the apocalypse. We have seen the apocalypse. We know what is happening. How do we run our lives in light of the fact that we know that this war is going on? We are a priesthood, believe it. You have a ministry to your friends and family. You are ministers. And so how tragic is it then that, that so many profess to believe followers of Jesus and profess to belong to a church and then come to church and ask themselves, what am I getting out of this? Right, American consumer church, what am I getting out of church? What does this verse say? What is your church getting out of you? Jesus said he made us to be something, and it wasn't spectators. He says we're priests. What is the church and world getting out of who Jesus made you? 
You are somebody. You are a priest of the everlasting God. You are a witness to the best possible news that's ever been given. What is the benefit to those around you? How tragic is it then for those who would profess faith, profess to be followers of Jesus and show up to church and then ask themselves how they felt about worship? It's not what this verse says. It doesn't say Jesus made us to be worshipped. It says he made us to worship. He made us to lead people in worship. He made us priests. Like, we are that if we are followers of Christ. How can we ask how we feel about worship? Why aren't we asking how God feels about worship? If you aren't ready to worship, there's not a guitar solo that's going to get you there. If you see a lack of the worship of God that you deem is necessary for him, then why don't you lead us? You sing louder. You clap. You pray. You're a priest. I'm not your hope. The worship team is not your hope. My personality is not your hope. The way I dress is not your hope. God help us if that was true. <coughs> Praise God it's not. The growth of Vanguard Bible Church is not your hope. Your hope is in the firstborn of the dead. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you is taken care of, is no longer a concern for you. Our response to the triune God magnified in the person of Christ is glory to Jesus as citizens of an everlasting kingdom, the last kingdom standing, and priests to the everlasting God. It's such a privilege that this is the picture that God gives us before we go on this journey into these crazy images. Not only does God want you to know who he is, completely God, triune, always everlasting, right? reigning king, completely at work, but he wants us to know who we are. We're not side characters. We're priests. We have a job to do in this story. Our reaction to everything that's about to happen is not to cover our heads or hide or try to figure stuff out. It's to be witnesses. As the kingdoms of the world fall apart, point to the everlasting kingdom. As false gods come up, point to the real God as priests. This should be our response to Jesus. And everyone's going to have a response to Jesus. And it's not going to be good. In verse 4, we're going to see the complete humanity reacts to Jesus. All of humanity will have a reaction to Jesus. And we already saw our response. We can rejoice. Like, we have been, everything's been revealed to us. But what about those who it wasn't revealed to yet? <clears throat> and so verse 7 Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. What a rich and 
misunderstood verse. We talked about the first um, sermon lecture in Revelation, that there's different views on Revelation, and they are not even close to each other, right? I mean, just they are just every direction as far apart as you can be. And yet, in verse 7, we find one of those verses where if we slightly get this wrong, if we head down a certain path where we don't understand this, even though it's just a slight little detour, at some point you end in completely different directions. And so we have to get verse 7 right. It will shape how we view all of Revelation, how we view the time frame, how we view who the people of God are how we view, like, when this starts. Who is Israel? Does it matter who Israel is today? And so we're going to go deep for a few minutes. And so if you need to stretch your neck, stretch out a little bit, we're going to go deep <coughs> in this verse. And so this verse is about King Jesus, Jesus as king. And there are three truths that we're going to find here from three other parts of Scripture. Because I think, like me, if you just read verse 7, you can't come to a conclusion of what that means. It doesn't even seem possible, just logistically. Right? And so there has to be an explanation to this verse. And so Jesus is king. So what does it mean that, that coming on the clouds means he's king? Like, how, how, does, how does that correlate? And to understand that, we have to go to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And it'll come on the screen. You don't have to rush over there. I saw on the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so we have here, right, is this other vision that we talked about, and Daniel has these same apocalyptic visions. We have Jesus on the clouds, and the reference here, Daniel is talking about the Son of Man, and if you've read the Gospels, you know Son of Man is Jesus' favorite description of himself. Like, that's the one that he associates with the most. He is the Son of Man. So he is this one in this vision. What does coming on the clouds mean here? It means that he receives kingship. When he goes on the clouds, he receives the everlasting dominion over everybody ever, every nation. And that's after his ascension. After he is resurrected and ascended, he becomes king. He receives that kingship. And so we know this verse, the first part of this verse says, it's letting you know Jesus is king. This verse in Daniel has been inaugurated. This is now. When Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and John says that as well, that's what they're talking about. Daniel 7 is not future. Daniel 7 took place at the resurrection, at the ascension. But as you read Daniel 7, you, you might note, well, that doesn't talk about him being pierced. And no, because there's another verse that this is referring to. And the original hearers had no problem putting this together. But we, we have to do our homework. And so we're going to look at Zechariah 12.10. <clears throat> and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy 
so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over the firstborn. Sound familiar? Right? So you have those two verses connected together. Why would, why would John connect these two verses together that seemingly don't seem like they would work together? Well, in this verse, we have God showing Israel by grace and judgment that they missed it. Their king came, and they killed him. And this is going to cause them to mourn and weep. They're going to realize it. I can't think of, I know John's trying to describe it like you're, if your child died, our firstborn died, and yes, I couldn't think of a worse thing. And that's what he's trying to, he's trying to say, what is the worst possible thing you can relate this to? And it's like a child dying or your firstborn dying when Israel realizes the one they were waiting for, they killed. And they will mourn and they will realize it. Now, Israel thought that Jesus couldn't be king because he was crucified. It was a curse to hang on a tree. They were expecting a king to take over Israel and to, to destroy Rome and to overthrow the world where they would be in charge. And so they didn't believe Jesus could be the king. What they didn't realize is that by killing him, and again, him resurrecting, being the firstborn of the dead, he took over the throne, not over Israel. He rejected the throne of Israel multiple times. He could have taken that in a millisecond. He rejected that throne so that he would be killed in order to come back as the king of all rulers, which we already read. But there's one more element to this verse that requires some consideration. One part of this verse doesn't line up with those other two verses. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man, it says, is ascending on the cloud, right? And here it says that, that Jesus is coming on the cloud. Now, some people say, well, he's coming towards the Ancient of Days. I don't think that's true because of Matthew 24, 30. Now, listen to the words of Jesus and how Jesus interprets this exact same passage. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. <clears throat> Does that sound familiar? Right? It's the same thing. He's citing the same passage, only about himself. And he's saying that he is coming on the clouds. Well, what does that mean? Is that the second coming? No. He does not say that's the second coming. Nowhere in that verse or context does that say that's the second coming of Jesus on the clouds. What he says is, it's going to be a sign that he's coming. Not him. He would say, when you see me, he says, this is a sign that I am coming. You will see me come on the clouds. Well, okay, what does the clouds mean? Clouds is the symbol of judgment. We find this in Isaiah 19.1. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. The coming of the clouds is the coming judgment of God. 
I mean, we can get that, right? We see clouds rolling in on a nice day. Oh, thunder's coming, rain is coming. It's going to get dark. It's going to get loud. It's going to get gloomy. And so it's an easy, it's an easy sign here. Now, what we have to understand is all these verses are working together, right? All these prophecies, Jesus referencing these prophecies. When does it say this is going to happen? It says in Matthew 24, 34. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is one of the verses that people who deny the Bible is true run to. They run to it. This is the reason people go into liberal seminaries and leave seminaries as non-believers. Jesus was wrong. He told this generation they would see this take place. That's what it says. And so we have to look at this because Jesus wasn't wrong. Jesus wasn't wrong. So what does this look like? I know we're in deep, so let's just let's put this all together. What is being described here? Israel rejected their king and killed him, pierced him. He rose from the grave, ascended on the clouds to the ancient of days and became king. They rejected the king, their king, and he became king over everything. And what's his first action as king? It's to come back on the same clouds or or other clouds and to judge those who rejected his kingship. He's coming to judge those who rejected him first. That's what he said. This generation shall not pass away. He didn't say that generation. There's a word for that in Greek. He didn't say a generation 3,000 years ago. Hey, I know you guys killed me, but man, some generation 3,000, 2,000 years ago, I'm going to take it out on them. That's unreasonable. That is not God. That doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is because it's not true. Just think about it. What makes sense? God is telling them, I'm going to judge you. When they are killing him, what do they tell him? Judge us. If we're wrong, judge us. Crucify him. If we're wrong, let the blood be on our heads. Jesus says, fine. It makes perfect sense that the first judgment would be the judgment of those who rejected him. The first cycle of revelation would find its meaning in the judgment of ethnic and religious Israel. In AD 70, in Matthew 24 again, go back and read Matthew 24 later. He says he's going to destroy the temple. In AD 70, that temple is destroyed. Why would he do that? It's obsolete. Christ is the sacrifice. He completed the whole system. There's no more need for a temple. There's no more expectation to make sacrifices to a soon-coming king. He has arrived. The temple is gone. The age of temple sacrifice is over. In Christ. This is the age of the church, the beginning of the last days.
The first judgment cycle of Revelation is against ethnic and religious Israel for rejecting him and killing him. Now, at some point in this, in this Revelation series, we're going to have a couple of sermons where we step aside from the text a little bit, and one of those we're going to do is about Israel, where we're just going to have a whole sermon, because even right now you have questions. Well, how does that work with Israel? And Israel has a future. It's just not, I think, what is being told to Christians today. And so we'll look at that. Um, along with the rapture, rapture is not mentioned in Revelation, but we're going to take a sermon at some point in Revelation and talk about it because of the association with the rapture. And I think there is an association with it. It's just not in the text, but we will still, we will still talk about that. <clears throat> but Israel here is rejected. Um, some would go as far as to say divorced. And I, I would lean that same direction. Because what does Revelation end with? It's a marriage, right, of the people of God. And so there's a divorce here, at least in some way, against religious Israel, against the temple, the way the temple operated Now, I believe this is the case because prior to this verse, in the describing of the Trinity, God the Father is described in three ways. Jesus is described in three ways, but the Holy Spirit is described in seven ways. The logical thing to do would have been to describe the Holy Spirit in three ways as well. Would it fit perfectly? Why draw attention in that description that's three, 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 everywhere, God, why go out of your way to have one thing that is just coming out and sticks out, one thing that doesn't quite belong? And I think that's intentionally to show us the connection between Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. And I want to read it again. I know we've heard it several times this morning, but it's key to understanding Revelation and the church. <clears throat> there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And so when you hear the, 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 the seven spirits, you have to go and you have to ask yourself, where is that referenced? What is this referencing? Oh, we found the reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. What is it showing us? What is being represented here? And it's the picture of everything that verse 7 is talking about. Israel has been chopped down. They have been judged. That's a stump. There's no way, other way to interpret it. It's been cut down. Israel is now a stump. What they were doing is eliminated. And yet we have Jesus, the shoot, right? Coming out of that, coming out of Israel, that's why I don't believe the church replaced Israel. The blessing is still in Israel. We've been grafted into Israel, but it is not through that stump. It is through that branch. It is through Christ himself, right? And the fruit of the Holy Spirit is to take this event and this judgment and through Christ to make this church, which still finds its root in Israel, right? This is Israel's story from the beginning, but now it looks completely differently. It's not about that stump growing back. It is about that olive shoot growing by the perfect ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
Is that crazy? Do you guys see it? Part of my burden during the week with stuff like this is, I think, introducing things that to me seem
please use this church, Lord, to... We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.